Good morning. If I have not had a chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Alan Pittman. I have the pleasure of serving as the lead pastor as well as one of our elders here at Living Hope. And we are absolutely thrilled that you are wish, with us, worshiping with us this morning. Uh, those of you that are in the building, those of you that are worshiping online with us. Uh, missed y'all last Sunday. Um, I know there were a couple of people that filled the slots of our family while we were out. I know Tate uh, was not here, so uh, Logan Carter just kind of, uh, Carter Logan, I mean, kind of took his place up here on the uh, children's chat for us. And then Jacob did a phenomenal job of preaching uh, the word last Sunday. So Jacob, thanks for filling in for us. Um, when you came in this morning, you should have picked up a worship guide, uh, or hopefully you did. And on the back of the worship guide, there's a place to take notes. You'll see that we're in the middle of a study on the book of Acts, and we'll be looking at Acts chapter 11 today. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that. If you don't, there should be a Bible near you, uh, underneath a chair around you. Feel free to uh, use that during the service. And if you need one at the house, feel free to take that with you as a gift from us. Uh, I mentioned earlier a couple of things. I mentioned an Advent guide as well as the... the uh, brochure to pray for missions and I would encourage you that if you and your household have not yet picked those up please do that today whenever we're dismissed um, there should be some more advent guides that are available out in the for your area if you need help finding that catch somebody and we'll help you find that and then as we dismiss there'll be some folks handing these out as well uh, because we want to be able to use this season to pray um, getting ready for Christmas to come as well as praying for missions and the need to share the gospel around the world and prayerfully consider how God might lead us to contribute to that financially. As I said last week, Jacob did a great job. He reminded us that uh, the book of Acts is all about, and the Christian life is all about taking the gospel message to the end of the earth. And the video that we watched a moment ago and the stats that we saw are a reminder of the importance of sharing the gospel. In fact, that's what God put the church on the earth for. God did not give us the church simply so that we would come into these four walls and we would enjoy each other's company and we would sing some songs, we'd read the Bible and we'd walk out unchanged. No, God gave us the church family for many reasons and one of the reasons that God gave us the church is so that the church would be on mission. And you see the title of the, the message this morning, I left the word A out, it should say some actions of a church on mission, some actions of a church on mission. God has given us a mission to take the gospel to the end of the earth, and that is our mission as a church family, and the question is, are we doing it? And if we're not, what steps can we take to do a better job of sharing the gospel around the globe? As we look at the book of Acts this morning, we're going to look at Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, and we're introduced here to a, a new church. A new church is being established in a city by the name of Antioch. In those times, there were a couple of different Antiochs. This one is called Antioch in Syria. And we're going to see that this church is established and that, that if we just fast forward a couple of chapters, we're going to find out that Antioch becomes an amazing church that is a springboard for worldwide Christian mission. You ever heard of the Christian missionary by the name of Paul? In, in the scripture, we see him by the name of Saul and Paul, and, and in Acts, Paul's story is told, and the church in Antioch in chapter 13 is going to actually send Paul off on his missionary journey. The church in Antioch becomes a, a great, powerful church that is a springboard for a worldwide Christian mission movement, and my question is, how did they do that? First and foremost, it was the work of the Lord through them. 
And then secondly, they took some actions that empowered them and enabled them to do this. Now, I don't want you to think that these are the three steps that a church must take, and therefore, if we do these three things, we're guaranteed guaranteed to have an incredible impact and that these are the only three things we need to do. Rather, I'm highlighting that these are just some of the things a church that is on mission does for the Lord. And so we're going to look at three things that this church did in Antioch that allowed them to get on God's mission and stay on his mission. And my challenge for us is that we would not just read about a historically true church by the name of uh, Antioch, but rather we would see what they did and then implement some of the same things they did in order that we might be a part of God's worldwide mission impact as well. Let's look at Acts chapter 11. We'll start in verse 19, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Here's what it says. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. I want to pause on verse 19. Verse 19 is a reminder of what took place. You can jot it down in your notes if you want to. You can look back in in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Whenever Stephen was persecuted, it says that a great persecution began and the church was scattered and went everywhere. And, and so he's reminding us, Luke is, in verse 19 here, that the way the gospel began to get out is because of the persecution that scattered the church. It says they went as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Then in verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas, here he is again, we've read about him a couple of times, they sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he came and saw the grace of God, Barnabas was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, Saul or Paul, same guy. And when he had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, who was Caesar. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I want us to begin our time together by looking at a map. It's going to show you a little bit about what is happening and where all of this is located. And you'll see there in verse 19, we we won't put those words on the screen because we've got the map there, but in verse 19 it says that they scattered as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And so we're going to see all three of these places on, on the map. You see Phoenicia over there on the right-hand side. You see Cyprus is an island out in the middle there. And then Antioch is kind of uh, on the right-hand side there, um, a little north of Cyprus. You see Jerusalem at the bottom of the map. So you kind of see the lay of the land. Uh, Greece is over there to the left. And that whole area where it says Galatia is modern-day Turkey, as well as actually Antioch is in modern-day Turkey as well. So we'll leave the map there uh, as I walk through this. So Phoenicia, you see, is, is kind of 
printed side to side. It really actually should be kind of running up and down because it's longer than it is wide, but that's kind of where they put it. Phoenicia is, is the seacoast area of Syria. It's about 100 miles long, about 15 miles wide, and it's in present-day Lebanon. And then Cyprus, you see, is an island. It's about 100 miles off the coast uh, of Syria there. And then in uh, Antioch, we see that it's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And it's about 20 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. So in all of that to say, the gospel now is going all over the world. And you're like, it's only 300 miles, but I guarantee you 300 miles is a long way back in the day, right? And so the gospel begins to make its way to Antioch. And then, like I said, in chapter 13, we're going to see that Paul, with the work of Antioch, goes to, to the rest of Turkey and is going to head towards Greece. And so the gospel begins to spread because of the persecution that the church is experiencing. Let me tell you a little bit about Antioch. Antioch is the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world uh, at that time period. It was only smaller than Rome and Alexandria. Uh, Antioch was about 500,000 people. It was a very diverse cosmopolitan city. It was kind of the melting pot, literally, people from all over. And so last week, um, Jacob talked about how the God used uh, Peter to take the gospel to Cornelius, to one household of, of a Gentile. Now the, the gospel is getting to many households, to many people there as it works in the midst of Antioch. Antioch is a city full of sin and decadence, decadence, and yet God raised up this church to be on mission for him. Let's look at three actions that they took. We read the text, and, and in the text, I think there's kind of three sections. The first section is verses 19 through 21, and we see the first action they took was they evangelized. And so if we will evangelize, then that puts us on mission with God. What, what does it mean to evangelize? Evangelize simply means to share the gospel, to share the good news with those who don't yet know Jesus. And that as we tell others about Jesus, the intent is that they would trust in him, that they would repent of their sins, that they would place their faith in Jesus and believe in him. We see that happening in verses 19 through 21. What we see here is that, 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 that as the church scattered, they preached the word, they spoke the word, they told others about Jesus. But perhaps you noticed in verse 19, it says that they only spoke it to the Jewish people until, until we see in verse 20, when some men from Cyprus and Cyrene came along and they began to preach to the Hellenists. What is a Hellenist? A Hellenist in this sense is a Gentile person. And so the men that are unnamed that came from Cyrene and Cyprus, you saw on the map where Cyprus was, Cyrene is a, a, a place in northern Africa, in modern-day Libya. These men went and they preached the message to the Hellenists. We see that in verse 20. And then in verse 21, it says that many of them, a great number, believed and turned to the Lord. So they're evangelizing and sharing the gospel with people around them. What I love is the fact that in this passage, we don't know the name of the men from Cyrene and Cyprus that preached the gospel. Because this story is not about them. This story is about the gospel. This story is about Jesus Christ. And, and it doesn't take a, 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 a professional to share the gospel. It doesn't take an apostle to share the gospel. It doesn't take a missionary. It doesn't take a pastor. It doesn't take a, 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 a deacon. It takes any of us that are willing to step out and tell others about Jesus. So we see that God used these ordinary, unnamed men to initiate a worldwide 
mission. So why was their evangelizing so effective? Look in verse 21. It says, the hand of the Lord was with them. The reason that as they preached the gospel, the gospel brought salvation is not because of their work, but because the work of the Lord was with them. And what it's saying is that the work of salvation is the work of the Lord. It's the sovereignty of the Lord. It is the power of the Holy Spirit at work. All they did was they were faithful to do what the Lord had called them to do, and that was that they were to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Guys, if we want to be on mission as a church, then we must evangelize and tell others about Jesus. You see, as exciting as it is to be a part of a church family, and as fun as it is to be a part of a church family, we will miss out if we're not on mission, and on mission means that we must be preaching the gospel. And whenever I say that we must be preaching the gospel, I'm not talking about on Sunday mornings only. So like, this is when we preach the gospel, so bring all your friends that don't know Jesus and come on Sunday mornings and the gospel will be preached. That's a good time to bring them, but the reality is that the gospel should be preached seven days a week, wherever we go, whatever we're doing, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. You and I, as we go about our everyday life, we are called by God to preach the gospel. So my question is this. Are you sharing the gospel of Jesus with others? Are you personally sharing the gospel of Jesus with others? I'm wondering if you'll do a little exercise with me. If you've got your sermon notes out, keep them out. If you don't, grab them or grab your phone and open a note or whatever. And I want you to take just a moment. Think about the people that are in your life. And as far as you know, think about people that don't know Jesus. Like maybe they've told you before they don't trust in Jesus, they don't believe in Jesus, or maybe you suspect they don't because you don't see any fruit in them. Think of people, don't just think in vague general terms, think of people by name. Who is it that the Lord has in your life that does not know Jesus? And as you think of their names, would you jot them down? The reason you're jotting them down is not because they're a horrible, despicable person, but rather you're jotting them down because they are someone that needs to hear the name of Jesus. And have you ever thought of this before? Perhaps God has you in their life so that you can tell them about Jesus. But if we don't go through the exercise, if we don't think through who is it in my life that I know that doesn't know Jesus, then we're probably going to go through our our lives without telling them about Jesus. But if we'll slow down and think about who is it in my life that doesn't know Jesus, and am I willing to evangelize and share the name of Jesus with them, bringing them the hope that is found in Christ? It's not an accident that you're in their life. So speak the word of Jesus to them. I've already alluded to this. The best evangelism is not when the preacher preaches the sermon. The best evangelism is whenever the church as a whole, the entire congregation goes out and on our own time, in our own places, in our own ordinary everyday lives begin to tell others about Jesus. You see, whenever we partner with 
the International Mission Board to send missionaries around the globe. The goal is not to have so many missionaries that we have missionaries everywhere that it's the missionary job to preach the gospel. Rather, the missionaries go to these unreached people groups, share the gospel, unreached people trust in Jesus, and then the indigenous people then begin to share their faith as they live their daily lives. It's the same story in College Station. All of us should go out and tell others about Jesus. We should evangelize as we go, when we're having a good day, when we're having a bad day. We should evangelize as we go in planned opportunities and spontaneous opportunities. But you and I are never going to share the gospel unless we pray for those opportunities and then look for those opportunities, and then when those opportunities arise, that we actually step up to the plate and begin to share the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to talk to one of our church members, and they were telling me how they were trying to share the gospel to someone that spoke another language, and they're like, I don't know, I hope I shared something with them that they would understand, and my, my point to them was, you stepped forward, you saw the need to share the gospel, and you began to try to tell them about Jesus. Let us begin to share the gospel. Be willing to tell everyone, not just those who are like you. My question for you is this. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you and then, then share the gospel with others? See, the reason the gospel was shared and, and shared in a powerful way was because the Lord's hand was with them. And you and I, as we preach the gospel, we need the Lord to be with us and we need to trust his sovereignty and his Holy Spirit to do the work instead of us. Along those same lines, though, I want to ask you this question. If you are to evangelize and tell others about Jesus, you first need to know about Jesus yourself. So my question is, have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus? Because I said that the job or the role of evangelism is to share the gospel so that others would repent and place their faith and their trust in Jesus. My question is, has there been a time in your life where you've acknowledged your need for Jesus, acknowledged that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness of your sins, and that Jesus is the only one that can bring salvation. This Christmas season, we celebrate the fact that Jesus was born, and he came and lived and walked on this planet, but Christmas is not the end of the story. The story goes on as Jesus lived and did ministry and, and lived a perfect life and was free of sin, and yet he died for our sins. Scripture tells us that our sins separate us from a holy, perfect God. And the only way that we can be made right with God again is by trusting in the finished, completed work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. He died for our sins. If we place our faith and our trust in him, then we receive forgiveness of our sins. See, he didn't just die. He was raised three days later, overcoming sin, death, and the grave. And he can overcome sin, death, and grave in your life as well. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? I'm not saying, do you call yourself a Christian? I'm not saying, do you go to church every Sunday? I'm not saying, do you pray special prayers? I'm saying, have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus? Today can be the day of salvation. So in the church of Antioch, we see that they learned from the very beginning the importance of evangelizing. As the men from Cyprus and Cyrene came in and told them about Jesus, then the church began to rise up and evangelize as well. And that's one step that we must take if we're going to be on mission with God. The other step that we need to take is to disciple others. 
That's there on your notes, disciple. And to disciple here, I'm talking about as a verb, not as the noun. And to disciple someone we see in verses 22 through 26. In verse 22, we find out that the church in Jerusalem finds out that, 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 that some work is going on in Antioch and that Gentiles are coming to faith and that a great number of them, in verse 21, has believed and turned to the Lord. And because of that, it says in 22 that the church sent Barnabas, a man of faith, a man full of the Holy Spirit, an encouraging man, that he went up there to see what the Lord was doing and he was excited, he was glad, it says in verse 23, when he saw that the grace of the Lord was at work among the people and he celebrated all that was was taking place and then in verse 23 we see the process of him discipling them or teaching them to follow Jesus at the end of verse 23 it says that Barnabas exhorted or encouraged or challenged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose he went up there to preach and encourage them to abide in Christ to disciple someone means to simply equip believers with the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to faithfully live for Jesus. You see, in those opening verses, we see that a diverse city of Antioch heard the gospel. Many people came to faith, but they were new believers. They didn't have even the Jewish background. They had no clue what it meant to follow Jesus. They had trusted in him for salvation, but now they need to begin to walk with Jesus. And in order for them to walk with Jesus, they needed someone to train and exhort and teach and disciple them. So Barnabas came for that purpose. But did you see what happened after he began to encourage them? He goes, oh my goodness, like there's some great stuff happening here. I need some more help. And so he went across the, the sea real quickly to Tarsus. He knew he could find Paul, and he brought Paul with him. And at this point, it had been eight or ten years since they had been together. And Paul comes, and he, he comes and, and spends time with Barnabas in Antioch. Look in verse 26. It says that when he found Saul, he brought him to Antioch and says, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. What I want us to see here is, first of all, I left one detail out that I want us to look back at. it In verse 22, sorry, 23, when it says that he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord, the word remain is the same word that's used for the word abide in John chapter 15. And if you remember John 15, it says that, that Jesus is the, the vine and we are the branches and we are to abide in him because if we don't abide or reside or stay or dwell in him, then we can do nothing. And so what Barnabas is saying is that you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation and now you must continue to abide in him and re remain faithful to him and follow him and be a, a faithful disciple. And then we see, as Paul and Barnabas preach to them for a whole year, that we're, they're training them and instructing them and teaching them and discipling them. It's very clear as you read this section that discipleship is taking place. And the reason I say that is because, first and foremost, we see that they are reflecting Christ in their lives. Look at the end of verse 20, um, at the verse, end of verse 26. It says, in, the, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Why were they called Christians? 
They were called Christians because it was clear that the Lord was at work within, within them and their lives were being impacted by his truth. And because of that, they were reflecting who Jesus is. All too often in our country, we use the word Christian almost like we use the word love. Like, I love baseball, I love football, I love pizza, I love my wife. Like, how do you differentiate the word love shouldn't describe all of those things, right? The word Christian all too often is thrown around vaguely. The reality is this word was not vaguely used about the people in Antioch. Rather, the people of Antioch that were not followers of Jesus saw that they were clearly impacted and changed and transformed by the love of Christ. And they may not have understood it, but they knew there was something different about these people because these people were reflecting Christ in their everyday life. So discipleship takes place whenever we're transformed into the shape and fashion of Jesus. And discipleship also takes place whenever we replicate and make other disciples. And so these disciples were not just gaining information. Their lives were being transformed. They weren't just being uh, informed. They were being transformed. And as they were being transformed, their lives were changed. And they were also telling others about Jesus. And the reason we know they were telling others about Jesus is because in verse 24, when it describes how Barnabas was was discipling them, it says a great many people were added to the Lord. They weren't being added necessarily just while he was teaching them because he was discipling them, but rather they were being discipled by Barnabas and then they were going out and telling others about Jesus as well. So to make disciples must mean that we evangelize, tell others about Jesus, and that we grow more and more like Jesus. I want us to look real quickly at a couple of components of discipleship. It happens in these verses, and it must happen in our lives. Discipleship must always include both instruction and accountability. Instruction and accountability. Let's first look at instruction. We see here in verse 26... It says that Saul and Barnabas taught the, these new disciples for a whole year. What did they teach them? They instructed them the scripture. They opened God's word and began to preach from the Old Testament. They began to recount the stories of Jesus because not all of them had been written down in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John yet. But they were preaching and teaching the scripture. Guys, if we're going to be faithful disciples of Jesus, if we're going to be a disciple who makes disciples, we must instruct one another in the scripture. We must instruct one another in the scripture. Instruction. It is to be both formal and un informal. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just in class, but uh, in uh, everyday conversation with others. It must be bathed in studying and understanding and applying God's word. My question for you is, are you becoming a disciple who is gaining instruction from God's word? Are you understanding God's word? Are you studying God's word? Are you applying God's word? And are you training others to do the same thing? Here at Living Hope, there's various ways that we put into practice this idea of instruction. On Sunday mornings, there's instruction as we walk through sermons together. 
On Sunday mornings, we have something at 9 o'clock called equipping classes. And in equipping classes, we instruct one another in God's Word. And in our equipping classes, we have something we call core classes. And we have three core classes. One's called Christian Story. The next one's called Christian Belief. And the next one's called Christian Formation. And the whole intention of this is that we would have the basic foundation that we need of the doctrines of the faith and that we then need to begin to live them out. My question for you is this. Are you being instructed in God's word? And are you putting it into practice? And are you seeking to disciple others along the way? But not only do we need instruction, we need accountability. And we see this accountability because the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas up there to kind of check things out and see what was happening. And in our lives, we need accountability in in our discipleship process because we need others to make sure that we're putting into practice the things that we're saying, that we're learning, that we're moving, as I said a moment ago, from information alone to transformation. If we're going to be a church that's on mission with God, then we must evangelize and tell others the good news of Jesus. But we can't stop there. We must continue the process as we disciple one another and instruct each other in order that we might grow in our faith and live out our faith on a daily basis. So to kind of finish out this section, I I would ask you two questions, and that is the first one is this, how are you being discipled? And then the second one is how are you discipling others? You see, to be disciple, we need to be discipled ourselves and we need to disciple others. The reality is none of us have ever arrived, like we're not going to arrive on this side of heaven. And my job should not be simply to disciple you, but also to be discipled by you. And so in my life, I have a, a, a D group, a discipleship group, and there's three of us in our group, and we meet on Monday mornings at 6 o'clock at McDonald's, and as we sit and discuss God's Word together, they don't sit and listen to their pastor. Three friends get together, and we disciple each other. We instruct each other, we hold each other accountable, we say, you said you were going to do that, you didn't do that, why didn't you do that, how can I pray for you, how can I pray alongside of you? We do life together. And to be a a church on mission, we all must be in a relationship such as that, that we can hold each other accountable as we instruct each other in God's word. So are you in an environment where you're being discipled? It could be a Bible study that you're a part of. It could be an equipping class. It could be um, a, a D group or a discipleship group. It could be, to some extent, a hope group. Don't, don't get me wrong, discipleship takes place in a hope group, but, but it's hard to do accountability at full force with a large group of people. It's typically a little bit better when we're in a smaller setting where more intimate discipleship is able to take place. And then my question is, how are you discipling others? We are discipled to go and disciple others. If all I'm doing is I'm sitting and soaking and receiving and I'm getting deeper in the Word and I'm understanding all this depths of Scripture, but I'm not sharing with anyone, I'm missing the point. This semester in equipping class, I've been going through uh, experiencing God. And I know that it's blessed me, and I think it has the others that have been in the group, but here's my question. Are we just going to get to the end of experiencing God and go, well, that was a good study, let's put it up on the shelf, or am I going to begin to teach those principles that I've learned or been reminded of in experiencing God to others? Am I going to multiply the message and disciple others? 
And I'm not saying that as a pastor. I'm saying that as a student that has gone through the class. Are you discipling others? The last thing I want to look at real quickly is the last paragraph. Not only should a church on mission be about evangelizing and discipling, but a church on mission must also be about serving. Look at the verses 27 through 30. It's interesting, we have a prophet show up, and I was talking to Nathan before the service, yes, there's a prophet that shows up in the New Testament, and here's a prophet, his name is Agabus, and he comes in, and he goes, the Lord has told me to tell you that a famine is coming, it's going to spread across the world, it's going to be a severe famine, and, and obviously there's some more details that we don't have right here, but something was said that the church in Judea was going to be in a, a difficult spot, and so the people in Antioch that were new believers heard about people that they'd never met before that lived 300 miles away and they're like those are our brothers and sisters in Christ as well let's take up a collection and they collected money to be able to provide needs for the church in Jerusalem here's the interesting thing the famine had not even started yet and they collected the funds and took it and delivered it before the famine even started so they're proactive, and they're like, God is sending us, as it says, to send relief. Look at um, the phrase, send relief, is somewhere there in verse 29. The interesting thing about the word send relief, if you go to the Greek, the word there is diakonia, and that is the word for deacon. And so when they sent relief, it says that they sent they served them. That's what the word deacon means. They served them. They did ministry. Guys, we are called as a church to serve one another. That serving one another sometimes is financial, and that serving one another sometimes looks a little bit different. But in every scenario, God has called us to serve one another. It's interesting that it says that they sent according to his ability. In other words, each person contributed financially, but not all the same dollar amount. They gave as the Lord gave them ability to do so. And so if you and I are going to serve each other, your way of serving may not be identical to my way of serving, and our giving may not be identical as we pray about giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, but all of us should give and serve according to our ability. I didn't put this in my notes, but I thought of this this week, and I wanted to share it because I just remembered it. It's dangerous when a pastor remembers something they don't have in their notes because their notes are already too long, and then he thinks of something else. I want to challenge us on something. Our church has a mixture of ages of people, and we are blessed by that. And we are blessed that the Lord, over the last couple of years, have brought some older members in with younger members as well. And because the last couple of years have happened, we've all aged a couple of years. There are more elderly people in our church than maybe you realize and recognize. A couple of weeks ago, we had um, a Thanksgiving meal. Some of our elderly people were here and because we got busy with our life, we let some of them carry their casserole dinners out into the dark parking lot without opening the door for them. Without saying, let me carry that for you. And what I'm not doing is saying we're horrible people. I'm just saying it hurt my heart when one of my church members told me that. They weren't fussing. They weren't griping. They were telling me. Guys, we have to serve one another. 
This church has a rich history of serving people. I mean, every Sunday after the service, we stack chairs, right? Like we serve. I was telling this story. I'm remembering a second story, and I promise I'll be done here in a second. Telling the story in the kitchen to Chad this morning. My mom was in town for the Nutcracker this week, and um, she's able to walk, but she doesn't get around very well. And so we called ahead of time and got a wheelchair from uh, Rudder Theater to put her in the wheelchair to carry her in the building. For those of you, there's, there's maybe three wheelchairs in here right now. Y'all can relate, and you're like, Alan, you're not telling me anything I didn't already know. But I experienced something. Did you know that as I pushed my mom through the hallway, maybe 1% of the people saw me? The other 99% were hurtling over the wheelchair, doing the limbo under the wheelchair, dancing around the wheelchair, unaware that the wheelchair was even there. I thought I was going to have to hit somebody with a wheelchair so I could get through with her. I'm saying, guys, there are people in our church, and I know you don't have to be elderly to be in a wheelchair, but I'm using those two two illustrations. There are people in our church family that there are needs that we can serve them with, but we all too often are like the people at Rudder Auditorium yesterday. We're too busy trying to go in and get our seat to watch the Nutcracker. We're oblivious to the needs around us. If we're going to be a church on mission, then we have to serve everybody that God puts in our life. So my question is, will you do it with me? Will you see a need around you and will you step up to the plate and say, I'll I'll take that. Like, I want to serve. Guys, if we're going to be the church... We must love one another well and serve one another well. To be a disciple, make disciples, be the church of the glory of God involves preaching the gospel good news of Jesus to any and everyone we come in contact with. To be on mission with God involves instructing and teaching and discipling and holding each other accountable to God's word. And it also must involve serving one another. So my question is, are you and I going to be that type of church? Are we willing to serve one another? Are we willing to preach the gospel? Are we willing to disciple each other and learn from each other? I've got other things in my notes that I'm going to just pass on by, but... Let me, let, me, let me read this verse. At the end of chapter 11, in verse 29, it says, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief. May we be a church that is determined to serve And may we be a church that 100% of us step up to the plate and serve, whether that's financial or time or talents or treasures or stuff, but let us serve. See, the church in Antioch was not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect church. 
but they were living on mission for God. And we're going to see real soon how because of that, they played a huge role in spreading the gospel around the world. But what I don't want us to do is set Antioch up as some special perfect church that had it together and by golly, we can't ever attain to that. The reality is that we are made up of unnamed people as well, ordinary people as well, that can and should evangelize, disciple, and serve. I found a quote in Experiencing God this week from Henry Blackaby, and here's what it says. Every congregation is a world missions strategy center every congregation is a world missions strategy center how incredible would it be if god chose to use us as we join him in his mission that we are part of sending the gospel message around the globe this morning in the video and on the graphic we saw the lostness of this world the question is, are we going to do anything about it? And when I say we, I'm actually talking about the Holy Spirit at work in us. Are we going to allow the Spirit to work in us that we might share the gospel around the globe? I'm going to lead us in prayer. And at the end of the prayer, we'll be able to sing together and respond as God leads us. And for some of us, that might mean that you need to come and pray at the altar. Some of you may want to come and pray with me. It might mean that you pull your connection card out from the chair in front of you and put down a prayer request or whatever. It might be that you begin to pray about how the Lord might use you to share the gospel with the people on your list that you made a moment ago. It might be that you need to say yes to Jesus for the very first time. But let's pray how God wants to use us to be a church on mission. Let's pray together.